that is scary sometimes and just choose a path, stay on the path. Sometimes your path will veer a little bit. Sometimes there'll be a bridge that's down and you have to fix the bridge or sometimes you have to walk around it. Sometimes you have to figure out a way to get a boat to get across. You will figure it out. If you're standing on a threshold, if you feel a yearning to tap into your greatest potential but you're caught in that fuzzy in-between space of the now and not yet, don't despair. You're being invited to pivot with greater purpose. You're on the thrilling edge of becoming. You are being called to unleash your soul song. I'm Becky Fleischer, and I believe we're all born with a gift that's uniquely ours, our very own soul song. And I discovered on my own journey that when we unleash it into the world, man, does it make life sing. You might express it through writing, science, cooking, nursing, teaching, or some other endeavor. The song is different for each of us, and its expression can change throughout your life. But it can only sing when you're in tune with your truest self. I know you're trying to get things in focus, that you're looking for encouragement and practical tools to illuminate your own personal journey. And that's what you're going to get here. I'm excited to travel this road with you. Let's get going. Hi, everybody. It's Becky Fleischer, the host of Unleash Your Soul Song. And before I get going today, I have a special guest in the booth, my business partner, Peter Carucci. Hey, Peter. Hey, Becky. It's exciting to be on your podcast. It's exciting to have you here because we have a really great idea that we want to share with my listeners. So throughout this year, we've been challenging ourselves to get really creative with ways that our music can help people through this really hard year. We posted a ton of music on our Instagram feed. We got creative with song notes to help people celebrate life milestones during quarantine. And now we have a really great idea for how we can bring a little more light into the world through our custom songs. That's right. As we approach the holidays and start to wrap up the year, we'd love to help people write a custom song a personalized song that reflects some of the good things, the silver linings that came through this year. You could use it in place of a year-end holiday card as a year-end review for your family. You could even use it as a message to lift up your friends, family, or coworkers. And you could even put it over a little picture montage. Yeah, I love that so much. Can't you just see all of these uplifting songs being spread around at the end of the year, just bringing some more joy and light? Mm-hmm. If this sounds interesting to you, we're offering a free consultation so that you can learn more about our process and what you'll get. And what do you say, Peter, if they sign up for a free consultation and mention that they heard this on Unleash Your Soul Song, how about we give them $500 off their custom song? Why not? You know, we really believe that music brings people together in such a unique and powerful way. Let's spread as much of that unity and joy as we can. Let's do it. So if you want to get your free custom song consultation, just go to 426studios.com. That's F-O-U-R, the number is 26studios.com. There's absolutely no obligation and no pressure. And hey, we're a pretty fun hang, so what do you have to lose? Get $500 off your custom song by getting your free consultation at 426 Studios today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. This past weekend was Halloween here in the United States. I don't think that's a global holiday. For those of you who are listening in other countries, I'm actually really curious. Do you celebrate Halloween? Do your kids dress up and trick or treat? Or am I talking about something that's not part of your country's traditions? Hmm. 
I don't know the answer to that. I'm curious. If you're listening in another country, I, I would love to know. Shoot me a, a message over on Instagram at Unleash Your Soul Song and let me know. I'm so curious. Anyway, this weekend, Halloween, is usually the time when people go out of their way to watch scary movies or go in haunted houses. And personally, I hate both of those things. Like, hate. I hate being scared. So I don't understand why anyone would go seeking that out, especially this year in 2020, when things are scary enough without any additional assistance. Why would you go out looking for anything else to add to the fright of this year? I don't know. It has been a hard year. And if you're following the show on Instagram and you watched my little music break video, then you know I mentioned I had a particularly hard week last week. We lost my father-in-law, who was 92 years old and lived a rich and full and wonderful life. He was the kindest, most optimistic man, not to mention one of the world's best and most reliable babysitters when my kids were younger. He lived his life with a kind of integrity that leaves a mark, and the best kind of mark. It feels appropriate to me to dedicate this episode in his memory because today's guest is the same kind of person. The kind of person who pushes for possibility with Such humility and grace and grit and tenacity and a really strong work ethic. These people are the kind of people who just fill you up. They fill you up with love and joy and hope. In the Jewish faith, they call people like this a mensch, a person of great integrity and honor. And my father-in-law, may his memory be a blessing, he was a mensch. Without question, he was a mensch, and he will be missed. And my guest today is also a mensch. Jeff Cohen is a multi-award-winning songwriter, producer, and publisher based in Nashville, whose songs have appeared on over 20 million albums sold, over 100 placements in film and TV, and over 10 million video games. His extensive list of number one hit songs spans genres and decades, and he has written with some of the best musicians in the business, including Big and Rich, The Band Perry, Sugarland, Josh Groban, Mandy Moore, Macy Gray, The Spin Doctors, Nick Lachey, so many more, including Evan and Jaron, who he had the number one hit with that I posted on Instagram the other day, Crazy for This Girl. He has written theme songs for a number of TV shows like Paw Patrol and The X's on Nickelodeon, Jack and Jill on the WB Network, Roll the Tape on ESPN, I Married a Princess on Lifetime, and Out of Pocket for the SEC Network. His songs have been featured in TV shows such as Dawson's Creek, Party of Five, One Tree Hill, American Idol, Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, and so many more. And if that wasn't enough, you can also hear his songs in movies such as The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, Stuart Little 2, Aquamarine, Princess Diaries, Grandma's Boy, and so much more. You've heard his music. You have heard his music. I guarantee it. If you listen to the radio, if you watch TV, if you watch movies, you have heard a song that Jeff Cohen has written. Now, as a musician, I could talk to Jeff all day for weeks about his songs, his process, his business, the industry. 
But that's not why I asked him on the show today. I asked him because he's been in our shoes. Now, with a track record like I just read out to you, you would think he's been a musician and a songwriter his whole life. But he hasn't. He came to songwriting a little later in his life and after a health scare that forced him to slow down and take stock. And there are three things in particular that I absolutely adore about his story that you're going to hear about. The first is that you can see that this dream of his to become a songwriter, it didn't really have a name or a shape until later in his life. But there were clues from his childhood, things he did as a child, just because he loved them, not because he was some sort of protege and not because he was going to school for them, just because he loved doing it. Second was when he went into the working world after college, he knew he liked writing songs, but he didn't think it could be anything more than a hobby. And I love this about him because he displays the best example of true humility, which isn't thinking lowly of yourself. True humility is actually accurate self-awareness. The ability to say, hey, I'm strong here and I'm a little weaker here or maybe a little average here. He could see that in himself, and with that awareness and humility, he followed the thread of what piqued his interest and followed his curiosity that led him straight to a top job in the music industry. Now third, his story about what it looks like when you reestablish yourself outside of what people know you for or what they expect of you or what they want for you is so valuable to hear. It is so valuable. I can't wait for you to hear it. It reminded me of Jack Canfield's equation for successfully navigating the journey to fulfilling your soul's purpose. His equation is E plus R equals O. The events, E, that happen combined with your response, R, meaning the way you choose to receive those events, determines the outcome. And this is where you're going to see why I lumped Jeff Cohen into the category of mensch right along with my father-in-law. He approaches everything with such integrity, such love, such tenacity, such fortitude. And the fact that I've had this past week to reflect on and celebrate my father-in-law's life and then turn around and edit this conversation I had with Jeff and work on this episode, it left me feeling so inspired and so hopeful. And I hope this conversation leaves you feeling the same way. So let's jump right in. Jeff Cohen, what an absolute treat to have you here today. I am so excited to have you on the show and to connect with you again. Yes. It's been several years since we first met. You did a private event for my girlfriend. We have to give a shout out to our friend, Catherine, or she'd be very upset with us. Absolute shout out to Catherine. She's awesome. She's totally awesome. It was an incredible night. <laughs> I'd be at least 30, 35 years at this point, maybe 40 or 50. It's been a long time. Yeah. It's been a long time. Exactly. It's been a minute, maybe not that many minutes, yeah. but. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's only been a few years, but, but I guess it's longer than I thought. Yeah. yeah. I think it's been over 10 years. That is crazy. It's totally crazy. And I have to admit, that night was so much fun. You guys were so great, but someone was pouring very heavy drinks that night. So <laughs> it was slightly foggy uh, towards the end. But I do remember what an awesome show it was. And you sharing your behind the scenes stories about songwriting and playing some of your hits. 
I definitely remember you playing the Evan and Jaron hit Crazy for This Girl, yeah, which yeah. is an amazing song. Um, and I'm sure you guys play the Spin Doctors song that you guys co-wrote, Can't Kick the Habit, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. So you have had some crazy amazing success as a songwriter which i teed up in your intro for everybody and we could do a whole series and a whole show about that but i heard an interview with you maybe a month or so ago where you were sharing a little bit about your story your journey to songwriting and i thought that was something that would really resonate with my listeners and i'd like to jump kind of right in with that if you're okay with that sure of course great so i know you loved music growing up but did you always think you were going to be a songwriter? Was that kind of your master plan? No, that wasn't my master plan until I was in my 30s. Um, I, I was a full-on athlete. And my dad basically was dead set on me being in the NBA. So I was every sport, all 24-7. When I was, I guess, I went to camp up in Massachusetts in the Berkshires, and I met two other campers. We were about 14 or so, or 15. One played drums, one played bass. So at the time, I was always into writing. I used to write short stories. I used to write poems. I used to write what I thought were novels. So in camp, I wrote, and I was the editor of our newsletter. I created this. I came up with this idea, and I got other people to contribute and got one of the counselors to help me. So these kids said, well, I know you write these little poems and stories. Would you want to write lyrics? And we'll write a song together, and we'll perform at the talent show. And I had never done it. So I wrote this lyric and melody. And then there I was telling the drummer, I was telling the bass player, okay, I need a bum, 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 bum. And I'm telling the drummer, when I go to this part, I need a fill like bum, 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 like very Phil Collins. Anyway, we went and we won the, the talent contest on the song that I wrote called Road to the Sun. And after the show, all the girls went up to the bass player. <laughs> and I'm like, hello. So I went home from camp and I said to my dad, I want to play bass. <laughs> I thought it was always the guitar player. <laughs> well, well, there was no guitar player in the band. Oh, okay. So you got the bass player. Drum. That's great. Be pretending I was Mick Jagger. And um, so my dad's like, well, why don't you learn how to play guitar first? Because I had had, I had four piano lessons when I was about seven or eight. And I remember showing up after a month and there was no teacher. And my dad basically, I'm like, dad, where's Uncle Vic? He goes, I canceled your lessons. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you don't want it bad enough. He goes, you're more interested in playing sports with the boys after school. And that's your callings to be an athlete, not a musician. And I'm like, dad, I'm seven, I'm eight. Like all the guys are playing at the schoolyard across the street. Why wouldn't I go play with them? He's like, if you really wanted music and were meant to do it, you'd come home from school and practice for two, three hours a day. And I'm like, in what world does that happen with a seven-year-old when all your friends are playing sports next door? So, yeah. So basically it was, you know, I took guitar lessons for about a few weeks, but I just basically taught myself how to play. And um it was definitely a, you know, please take the guitar into the basement if you're going to play or practice. So when you went to school, did you go to school for music? Oh, my God, no. I didn't even, I didn't take a single music class. I went 
went to school for law and originally accounting, and then I decided pre-law. So I went to Franklin and Marshall in Pennsylvania, and because it had a good liberal arts um, law program. Yeah, no, I didn't. I've never taken a music class in my life. Great. So you go to college, you're pre-law. I'm sure your parents were very proud and very happy about that. And then you get well, out of college and you... They were and they weren't. They, my dad wanted me to be an accountant. And um, I took accounting freshman year. And I was, at the time, I was pledging a fraternity. I had a girlfriend and I was playing intramural basketball. And I just started accounting grade and then you got to really keep up with the homework in accounting. Otherwise you just fall behind. And I was not into accounting. So I really tended to lean towards an English major and a government major. And I told my parents and they were like, well, who's going to pay for school if you do that? And I said, well, what do you mean? They go, what kind of job can you get with an English major? And I had to think quick and I said law. And all of a sudden they were like, that's cool. We'll take a lawyer. Okay, that's fine. Exactly. So then you, you graduated, and I'm, I'm guessing that you did not become a lawyer because that's not uh, in your background. I went to school in England for my second semester of junior year. And while I was over there, I realized I studied government there in English literature. And I realized I wasn't convinced I wanted to be a lawyer at that point. And I know how hard it is, law school, and I know that that's a commitment. And you know, it's incredibly, incredibly beneficial. I mean, even if you don't become a lawyer, having that experience. But I said, let me work for a year and then see if I still want it. So I basically put it off for a year and I took a job. My, one of my best friends, who's a year older, she took a job at the Macy's Executive Training Program, the buying program, which that and Nordstrom's were considered the top two in the country at the time. And, uh, you know, it paid 21000 a year, which I thought was plenty to get going. You know, I did that. And after six months, I realized if I'm going to work 80 hours a week, six, seven days a week, I might as well do something I actually like. And what was that? Well, I thought I was 22, almost 23. Actually, I was 23. And I thought, well, I love music. I thought I'm an average singer. I'm a very average guitar player, even worse piano player. I said, I think I could write songs pretty well, but how could you make a living writing songs? I mean, I grew up, my dad was a teacher. My, you know, my uncle was an accountant. I didn't know there was an industry for songwriters, but I thought I knew what was good. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to write to every record label in New York and I'm going to go try to find the next U2 or the next Jackson Brown or the next Bon Jovi or whoever was big at the time. And I wrote to every record label and, and nobody wrote me back. No one, not one? Not one. Wow. But you did eventually get in at BMI for people who know a little bit about your story. So tell us, how, how did that come about? How did you get in there? I went to a temp agency and I asked for jobs in the music companies and they said, well, there were none in music departments, but there was a job in, and how ironic is this, the collection, collection licensing accounting department of a company I had never heard of. And I remember going to the library to research this company, pre-internet everyone. And I went into my interview with my suit and I took a typing test and I met this woman and she said, where do you see yourself in five years? 
And I said, I probably will have signed two or three multi-platinum bands by that point. And she goes, you realize this job is to be the secretary to my secretary. You will answer phones, type my letters, and make my coffee. Oh, geez. And I said, great. And she goes, your typing test was terrible. <laughs> and I go, give me a number of what you need and I'll get that. I'll stay in all weekend. I'll get it to that number. Wow. And she, do you even know how to make coffee? I go, I'm sure that's not very difficult. And she looked at me and she goes, you realize this is not the music department. You have nothing to do with the music department. And I go, well, it's a music company. I said, I'm cool with that. I said, if I do really great, you never know. I'll, I'll take the job. And she goes, I haven't offered it to you yet. Oh, hysterical. <laughs> and I looked at her and in a moment of, I don't know what got into me. I just go, you really should. I said, we're going we're gonna to be great. And she looked at me and she goes, oh my God, why am I going to regret this? You start tomorrow, show up tomorrow. <laughs> so I showed up the next day and about three months later, she gave me a speech to type because she had to speak at the executive conference of the whole company, every department. And she was speaking on customer service. And this is where I have to tell everyone listening, every little thing you do, you don't understand. Sometimes it sets you up for something else. And when I was in school and college, they had just started a school pub nightclub at my school. And I thought it was the coolest thing. So I, as a sophomore, took a job there, basically sweeping and behind the counter and came up with an idea to incorporate entertainment. Singer-songwriters, comedians. I got them to put a big screen so we'd show classic movies down there, I, football games. And by my junior year, I was running the school pub. And every, you know I had a whole staff. So I took that experience and the Macy's experience and my boss had to write a speech about customer service. So I typed her speech and it was really bad. And I finished it and I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna rewrite this. So I rewrote her whole speech and I went in the next morning and I said, here's your speech. And she goes, thank you. And, I, and then I don't know why I said this, but I said, listen, you know, I love customer service and your speech really inspired me. So I put a few addendums and I took some things out and I just had some fun with it. So here's an alternate version. If you don't like it, just throw it in the garbage. It was a lot of fun for me to do. And she goes, I didn't ask you to do that. And I go, then toss it. I said, it was, I had a lot of fun. So she goes, okay, you can go. <laughs> so I went back to my cubicle. 15 minutes later, she comes out and she goes, get in my office now. Uh oh. <laughs> oh shit, I just got from my first job. <laughs> and she goes, okay, look, I don't know who the hell you are, but we're gonna make a deal right now. You do whatever you have to do to get where you need to go. And when you're my boss, you remember that I let you do that. And I'm like, what? She goes, listen, the women in your cubicle base tell me you're out till one, two every morning. And I go, yeah, I'm out seeing bands every night. I catch the it's I catch the last bus back to where I am and yeah. And I said, I still get in at nine and I still get my work. She goes, Jeff, you do more work in one day than all the other three people combined in your little pool over there. I'm not questioning that. This speech you wrote, she took hers, threw hers in the garbage. And she goes, 
you are making me look really, really good right now. You're coming with me to this conference. That's amazing. Wow. Took me to the conference and she goes, do what you got to do. And I went and I met all the people in the music department. What I did was I just basically did recon and I just sussed out who did what in each of these departments. And I became really friendly with a guy who was the head of the international music department. And I saw there was one guy who was out every night doing things. So basically I went to his office after and I said, look, I'm Jeff upstairs. You know, you met me briefly. I'm done at five. They kicked me out. If you have any extra paperwork, I'm out every night to see bands. If you want me to scout, I'll do it for nothing. And if a secretary job opens in music, I'd love to get an interview and be, be considered. And his name was Mark Freed, great guy. And he said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, you tell me, what am I doing tonight? That's great. And six months later, I was his assistant. Uh, two years later, associate director. A year and a half later, director. Then I was director of Warren Chapel. And then BMI got me back to be the senior director of the New York office at 29. Wow. And just so the listeners who, who may not be as familiar with the whole music industry. So BMI is, is Broadcast Music Inc. It's a music rights management company. And they're one of just a handful of performing rights organizations in the United States that go and collect royalties for musicians and manage musicians. And so it's, it's the business end of music, right? It is. It's the business end. So you're 29 years old. You are the senior director at BMI. So you are living a great life. You are living your dream because you're in music. Up to almost six figures. I was, you know, Spence account. I got to work with some of the greatest bands in the world. And I luckily found a few of those and signed them. And it was fantastic. And nothing but amazing things to say about BMI. I mean, what a great company, the people there. It was family. Working at BMI was like working for a family. And I unfortunately inappropriately got sick um, when I was at the end of 32, almost 33. And I, had a, I couldn't really work for a few months. And while I was in the hospital one night, I just thought, well, I've got an amazing family, amazing friends, and this job is great. But my favorite time of the day is like when I get home from seeing these bands at like midnight, and I just take my acoustic guitar and I just play and play a little bit or, you know, if I had a crush on someone, I'd write them a song. You know, I mean, I, mean, you know, I didn't really write often, but I thought that the songs were getting better. I had a little bit of a meter because I was getting hundreds to thousands of CDs a week and, and cassettes a week to help other people. So I knew the level and every now and then my friends would try to, pour me a little too much wine and make me play at parties. And I'd always be like, Hey, no, no, don't tell anyone that I do this. And I would plan my birthday under different names and we'd sell out the bitter end. And I'll never forget. I did a birthday show around 31, 32, right before I got sick. And um, the head of A&R for RCA records was there and the head of EMI, they were just friends of mine. So they're sitting by the soundboard, not realizing that we were taping the show with a mic right there. And I overheard when I got the tape, one of the guys said, holy shit, this, like, these songs are really good. And the other guy goes, this is better than anything I've signed in the last few years. And he goes, do you think he would do this full time? 
because he really could. I'm sitting there listening to their conversation. That's something. And that uh, was that before you. That was that before you got sick and before you kind of thought, oh, I should go be a songwriter. So you could like kind of maybe planted that seed a little. Um, that was yeah. That was before. It was about a month or two, a few months before I got sick. But I still, you know, I was. I thought I was king of the world. I mean, I'm. I have this great job, and I was on the fast track. Yeah, you, know? well, you should share. I mean, you have you have to do a little dropping of names here of some of the people that you signed while you were at BMI and people you found. So just to give some context of how king of the world you were. I don't know. I mean, I I mean, I felt that way because it was my dream job. But um, you know, I mean, you know, my fr I signed the Spin Doctors, Chris, one of my first. I signed a band called Uncle Tupelo, who became Wilco in Sunvolt. Um, Jeff Buckley, um, Lisa Loeb, who is just one of my favorites, uh, Joan Osborne. I signed a girl, Cara Diaguardi, who ended up becoming American Idol judge and probably the, one of the top, if not the top writer for, two th you know, for about a decade. Um, I mean, gosh, there are so many others I'm trying to think. Yeah, Blues Traveler. I mean, just these little groups, you know, the Spin Doctors and Lisa Loeb and just these little things. <laughs> yeah, they're they're big to all of us. Those are big names. So, okay, so you you you're around all these phenomenal musicians, right? You you've got the ear, you can hear it, you think that you can write a little, you enjoy doing it, right? And so you're hearing some of your your friends who are in the field saying, Wow, he's actually got some chops here. Was there a part of you maybe before you got sick or even when you got sick and you started thinking about making that shift to songwriting, was there part of you that thought like, who am I to go become a songwriter? Well, yeah. I mean, that was instilled from my dad from the time I was born. I mean, and I mean, like when I quit Macy's to try to go work in the music industry, you know, I think my dad's only comment was you better have health insurance. And I'm like, I'm on Cobra for a while. I've got 12 <laughs> months. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then when I started BMI, the health insurance kicked in, I think, after three months, so I was golden. But I remember telling my dad back then, I said, give me five years and I will be making five times as much and I will be a music exec. Because I started at BMI at 16000 And five years later, I was making over 5000 five times more and I was an exec. So when the time to quit came to do this, I told my parents and... My dad was like, well, we completely didn't believe you the first time that you could do it. So I guess you know what you're doing. Go for it. And my mom was like, you, you sure? And then my dad goes, well, if he fails after a year, I'm sure that he can go back. They all know him. And I go, dad, I'm, I'm not doing this for a year. You don't quit to become a songwriter full time and give up after a year. Yeah. I said, that's how the industry weeds people out. And after my mom left the room, my dad looked at me and he goes, you better know what you're doing. I did that to, to ease your mom's fears. <laughs> well, okay. There is so much in that to unpack. Number one, which is it's the hardest. I feel like it's the hardest to make a big change when the people that are closest to you don't totally get it or aren't, aren't fully, you know, putting the wind underneath your sails. That's hard because you're really up against it. Now you had some, you had a track record. On the business side, but not on the creative side. And, and at, you know, I tried to put myself in my dad's shoes in that number one, I know my dad and everything that he did was, you know, for what he thought was best for his kids. And, you know, my dad grew up, you know, my grandmother was a school teacher. My grandfather worked at the post office. My dad was a teacher. 
I mean, okay, my, my, my dad's sick, right? He has dementia right now. And the, even the last time, one of the last times I was visiting him, we were sitting in there and he said to me, I never understood why you didn't become a gym teacher. You were such a great athlete. And he goes, you would have had a much more steady life. Mm. And he's still thinking that way in his mid eighties. Yeah. So, you know, I understood he was looking for security and for safety. And that's the way that he lived his life. So to me, I, I, I understood that. I, I never took it personally. I mean, it was um, the bottom line is when I started, my mom and dad came to all my shows. You know, I mean, I'll never forget after I'd quit, I had had a really nice run and I had just done the theme for a big WB show. We had Evan and Jaron and I had started doing, I think I did Stuart Little too. We did some movies and I played a show in New York and we sold it out. Full show, I had two, two at a standing ovation, I had two encores. And after the show, I'm backstage with my girlfriend and my dad comes back and he goes, wow, everyone really seemed to like that. He goes, that was great. And my girlfriend kind of looked at me like, whoa, what is going on here? And I just looked at her and I go, I, I remember this. I just whispered, I go, wait for it wait for it and she, and my dad's like wow these people he goes and there were no other pieces on stage with you it was just you and they still came to see you and i go yeah daddy because i was really shocked that there were not other pieces up there with you other real musicians and i was like yeah i just it was a really kind of off the cuff show and then then came what i'm used to and he goes could you imagine if a real singer was up there singing those songs, they would have really loved it. Oh no. And I just, he was like a James Taylor. And I go, your dad, if James Taylor had done those songs, it would have been unbelievable. I said, you're right, it would have been, would have been great. And he goes, but it was still, he goes, I think they really liked it. So anyway, after he left, my girlfriend just looked at me and I go, it's fine. She goes, does he not realize Right. sold out? It was just you and a guitar and you got a standing ovation and that still wasn't good wow. enough. And I'm like, wow. I said, it, it is what it is. And good on you to have good perspective on it. I mean, really so good. I mean, that that is a big piece, I think, that would stop a lot of people. So the fact that you didn't and you just kept pushing through is amazing. Now, when you when you were ready to actually leave BMI, I know that you you were ill you kind of had that moment of reflection and reevaluation yeah. of what is it that I love to do? You know, you really had to, what I call, you had to get in tune with yourself and say, what would I regret if I didn't go for it? But you know, what, what's it calling me forward? And you went for it. And so you walk into your boss's office. Oh God, yes. <laughs> Tell us that. So I remember coming back from the doctor uh, and he basically was like, okay, you're going to recover from this. Like, you're not going to die right now from this. And uh, I remember thinking, could I, if I was writing full time, could I make 25% of what I'm making and be okay with that? And I'm like, absolutely. So I waited till I was healthy. I didn't just make a rash decision when I was sick. I waited until I got my health back. I gave it a few months and I remember going into Del Bryant's office, who was the VP, senior VP, or president. He was president, actually. What am I saying? He was, I was, he was president. And um, I told him, I said, Del, I'm, uh, I'm going to be leaving. And he's like, whoa, whoa, you're not going to ASCAP or Sony or Universal or anywhere. I go, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, 
I don't want to say I'm quitting because I, I love this place. I look at it as I'm retiring from BMI. And he goes, what are you going to do? You're 33. You can't retire yet. He goes, I go, I'm going to be a songwriter. And he goes, whoa, Jeff, you know how difficult that, he goes, so you have some stuff lined up, right? Some cuts lined up. And I'm like, no, I think I have about five or six really strong songs I could start showing people. I haven't really showed anyone anything. I've been a BMI. I'm not allowed. He goes, you don't have any cuts lined up and you're just walking away and starting from scratch. I go, well, no, I think I know what I'm doing. I think I've got some good songs to start with. And he goes, okay, you're being promoted, vice president, we're moving your salary up to this, go back to your office. I'm sorry you just went through what you did, this never happened, but we love you here, go back. And I go, Dell, number one, that means the world to me. And I said, it just says what a class guy you are. I said, you could offer me your position and $5 million a year. And the answer is made up. I am trying to do this. I said, I will never forgive myself if I don't try. I've got enough saved up to make it about three to six months. And if not, I've lined up a job at my friend's restaurant hosting. And he looked at me like, you're going to go from VP of BMI to go hosting at your friend's restaurant. I go, whatever it takes. Wow. But I said, I will figure this out. And I said, I'm going to get a song on TV, a song in a movie, a song on the radio. I'm going to get a BMI award and a Grammy. And he goes, how long do you think that's going to take? I go, I don't know. It could take 10 years. I've got a one-year plan, a three-year plan, a five-year plan, a seven-year plan. And when I'm 40, I will then look back and I will assess what's going on. And if I'm an epic failure, then either I will figure out a way to get back into the industry side or I'll do something else. But I said, I am not looking back for seven years. And the truth is, even if I am a failure at seven years, I'll probably still keep going. But I will not look back until I'm seven years. And the crazy thing about that is the way the music industry changed on me. When I set my company up and, you know, when I quit at the end of 99, 2000, it was a completely different industry. And that was the industry that I knew. I set my industry up the way that it worked for the past 20 years. And all of a sudden, there was Napster. All of a sudden, there was streaming. All of a sudden, people are not buying records. So I had set it up where, you know, I got a cut on a Mandy Moore record. or I got a cut on this record. And I was still making great money. Now, all of a sudden, that whole aspect disappeared. You either had to have the radio single or you were not making anything or you had to get like a big sink. And, you know, I got some really bad advice when I, my first break was I was the theme song of Jack and Jill, which was on the WB. I made my own album and started doing very well with that. And everybody said, look, hey, it's hard enough for them to take you seriously as a songwriter. If they think you're trying to be an artist, no one's gonna let you work with anyone. They're not gonna take you seriously. You're a 35 year old, you know, at the time guy with a bad hair plug job, but wasn't even bald, you know, and of limited skill set. And the truth is what I misjudged was a lot of it's about connection when you're on stage. And it's not always about the pristine voice. It's the connection. I look back on some of my favorite artists. Are they the greatest singers? I don't think they are. But they have their own thing, and, it, and it, I feel it. 
And the truth is, had I gone out and played a bunch of shows, 100, 200 shows a year, what a concept. I would have got better. Yeah. It's that 100,000 hours, whatever, 10,000 hours theory. And 20 years later, I don't think anyone would have not ridden with me because I opened for the Counting Crows or Matchbox 20 or the Spin Doctors. In fact, if anything, it would have been cooler. I work with a bunch of writers right now who had been like, for example, the guy from Semisonic, Dan Wilson, ended up writing the Adele hits and the Dixie Chicks hits. Okay, I mean, Kevin Griffith, who is in Better Than Ezra, he co-wrote the Howie Day song, Collide, and he co-wrote Stuck Like Glue for Sugarland, you know? And they still have their live thing too. So it, it, that was really bad advice. And it was mostly from people mm. who knew me as the guy in the suit who signed bands. They could not break the perception. So you had earlier told me a story about when you left BMI, you went to go meet with a Sony exec and you played some songs for her. And she basically told you, these aren't hits. These aren't going to work. How did you react to that? What did you say to yourself when you left there? This is what I'm up against. Bring it on. Let's go. Let's go. And I'm like, okay, publishers and A&R are out of my picture. Where can I make an impact? Start with reinvent your plan. Because originally I did plan on going to A&R people and seeing if I could get on projects. Those doors were shut, closed to me. So I said, okay, I love traveling. I have friends in Europe. In Europe, there's a lot of talented people. I'm going to go find someone who could do my songs and I'm going to go try to get some songs cut in Europe where I can be judged on the merit of just being a quality songwriter and where I knew being an American actually worked to my benefit because A, I was good with lyrics and I played my instruments, but being an American and being a strong lyricist was a benefit in Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and Germany in these places. And they were excited to work with an American. So I focused on that, and then I focused on TV film because I had no publishing deal. So I own the masters, I own the recordings, I own the publishing. And, you know, if Sarah McLaughlin or Coldplay were like, you got to give us 10,000, I'd be like, I'll do it for four, you know? And I remember Jack and Jill, when I got that, one of the bands in New York, friends of mine, got a placement for five grand. And I was getting 3,000 a song. And the next time they gave me a sync, I said, hey, by the way, I just want to let you know that I know that they're getting 5000 for the same placement. And I want to say, I'm okay with that. Just use more of my songs. Oh, clever, clever. A woman said to me, and that's one of the reasons why they're going to get a one placement and we're never going to work with them again because their manager squeezed us for five. And that's why we will continue to work with you. Mm-hmm. Not only did I end up getting 27 songs on that one show. Wow. Second season. Now, one thing I did, and this is a smart move for uh, people, but to me, I didn't look at it as a smart move. I looked at it as, why wouldn't you do this? It just was common courtesy. When I went to the WB, when I was out there, I would go out meet for lunch with the head of the music department and she would play me songs and stuff, you know, scenes and I'd sing songs. And then I'd say, Hey, can I go upstairs and just say hi to the business affairs person and the lawyers, the ones who I was in contact with doing all the contracts with. 
and I would just go up there and I would, I mean, I, I, I remember so fondly right now. And they were like, Jeff, you're the only artist that ever comes up to visit us and just hang with us. And I knew about their families and I talked to them and I gave them CDs and every now and then I'd bring my guitar up and I'd say, if you want me to play for your staff, I'll play for all the people in the business affairs or the legal staff. And when the second season came, I got, I was at the business affairs. She called me up and she goes, look, show's not very good chance it's not going to get picked up again after this year because for whatever reason the producer and the creator didn't they had us a falling out she goes we've got budget for futures on this so i don't know if it's going to go into syndication so what i can do is instead of you might get the money later i've got the money in a pool we're now going to give you seven thousand dollars per placement so for the whole and for the 11 placements I got on the second season, it was 7,000 with no back end, but 7,000. And the show wasn't picked up. All comes down to those relationships and, you know, being a good, interesting person and interested in other people and genuinely wanting to connect and to know people. And I, I think it's incredible that, well, first off, I think it's incredible you left your job at BMI. I think most people would never even do that. They wouldn't have the guts to go out and leave a sure thing where they were happy, where they were successful, where they're doing something they love. And maybe, yeah, there's something else they might like, but people don't have the courage to do that. And that's really a lot of what this show is about, is about people who are trying to find that courage to go make that jump. So the fact you did it is incredible. But then the fact that everything really changed after you did. You made your plan on a music model that changed, boom, like that. And then to think, I'm, I know people are probably thinking, well, he was already in the music industry. You know, that would have been an easy switch. But hearing you talk about it, it wasn't. It actually was a detriment. It still is, 20 years ago. Really? Yeah. Even after all of your success, even after all of your hits, and you are, I mean, you are an established songwriter. <laughs> you know, I, it used to bother me. I'm not going to lie. Like, it would bother me where I'm like, okay, I just had a number one, a top five, and a top 20, and I can't get in on that project. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, there's so much to unpack about your story in terms of how people can move forward through these shifts. Because what you're explaining here is how it wasn't just the one big shift, which, I mean, that was the big one. You know, you had to leave that job. You had to get out there. You totally reinvented yourself. But you have to continually make these adjustments all along the way. You know, it's never this easy, smooth sailing. I mean, the road does kind of rise up to meet you once you set your intention and you say, like you said, I'm going to be a songwriter and I'm doing this for you know, 10 years, I'm not going to turn back until I've, I've set this mark. And you know what, I've got to be a hostess. If I have to be a host at a restaurant, I have to do what I have to do to make this happen. Yeah. And you just, you set out with that intention. You got there. I mean, you got there. It's not always so super easy, but I'm sure it feels great to have made the jump, even with all of the pitfalls and with all of the, the different pivots you have to continue to make. You're so right. I mean, to me, there's two ways to look at it. At the end of the day, even if it's all over tomorrow for me, I can say, you know what, I, I did it. And, and I gave it my shot and, and I had success at it and I enjoyed it. And, and the other thing is that I've made so many bad decisions in 20 years as a songwriter where I wasn't maybe aggressive enough or I misread a situation where 
the door was open and I was a little too, you know, respectful when I should have walked through that door. Maybe I didn't partner with certain people when I had an opportunity early on because I was so caught up in working with the big artists I was working with that I missed one or two of these younger people that I just didn't have time for at the time or more yet I didn't make time for. Mm. But luckily I made enough right moves that I've afforded myself a decent career. So you're not going to make every right decision all the time. It's, it's impossible. But at the same time in your voice, I don't hear this defeat. I still hear, I'm so happy I'm doing this. There are pitfalls along the way, but I can still keep my eye on the road and I can still keep going. Someone said something to me years ago that stuck in my head and they go, just because you failed at something doesn't mean you're a failure. And sometimes you make mistakes and it's how you react from them. I think that's probably what has helped you navigate through all of this. It sounds to me like that's a good thread of consistency through your life story is that you are honest, you're forthright, you're true, you put yourself out there, you do it with integrity, and you continue to listen to what you're feeling inside is right. And that's what's guiding you and, and acting on that. And that's so important, so hard and, and hard for people sometimes. Remember, I wrote a song one time and the bridge just said, the high road's a hard one, but you'll sleep tonight. Yeah. And that's how I feel. And, and my attitude is, you know, look, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone misses opportunities and stuff. The bottom line is if, you, if you're trying to do the right thing by people and you're upfront, then you're you have no control over the bad behavior of certain other people, but you do have control over if you have to, if you want to deal with them. Yeah. And you didn't let that get you down in your early songwriting career when, when you went to people and they had very different opinions about your music or different opinions about how you were going to fare in the songwriting. You just kept going. So, I mean, I think that that's an incredible, great takeaway for everybody today is just, especially when you're doing something later in life and you have to redefine yourself that's hard. You did it. You paid the price to do it. You stayed true to yourself and you made it through. And look at like what an amazing success you are. My ex-girlfriend's father was a very famous songwriter. And I asked her mom, I said, when he had his like second number one or his second movie or this, did he ever take his foot off the gas? Did he ever? And she's like, he thought he had his best song and another number one in him, even on the day he died. And I said, okay, so I'm not crazy. To me, because my girlfriend used to say, you operate as if you've never had these hit songs and you're always more focused on what's next. And I'm like, and that's why I'm going to do this into my 80s or 90s. Yes. If someone said to me, what's your favorite thing you're most proud of in your 20-year career? I can answer that without hesitation. And that is, I can go to Los Angeles, in Nashville, I can go to London, Stockholm, Oslo, Copenhagen, Berlin, Amsterdam, Milan, Sydney, Australia, Melbourne, and I have got a base of friends, and I've got a network of people that I could show up in those cities and spend time with, and they're real friends. Some of us have had great success together in the music business. Some of us have just become friends. That's the best thing I think that has happened in my 20-year career. Yes, I'm proud of the accomplishments on songwriting side and that I've made people happy by listening and won awards. 
those people who I get to hang out with every time I go to those cities and knowing that I've got a network around the world. Honestly, like that integrity is what makes you such a great songwriter. I mean, you, you just to be able to weave that through your writing, to be able to bring that out into the world. I think that's really what resonates with people when they hear music and when they hear your songs and what makes them so powerful. So I thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story with us. I think it's incredible. Everything that you've done, all the courage you've had throughout all of it. The music industry is not an easy one to switch into. One thing I will say to people who are listening is when I jumped off the cliff the first time to go work for BMI, I was jumping blind. I mean, my roommate had actually put an application for McDonald's because it was one next to our apartment. And he's like, if you don't get a job in a month or two, you're going to get a job and you're doing that. And I'm like, I will get a job, have some faith here. And when you quit or when you do make a move like that, have confidence in yourself, but also try to have a plan. And if certain aspects of your plan don't go exactly as planned, pivot a little bit. You are consistently adjusting your plan, but set goals for yourself. Mm -hmm. Set goals and realize that it is scary sometimes. And don't let anyone tell you that it's not. It is scary sometimes. And just choose a path. Stay on the path. Sometimes your path will veer a little bit. Sometimes there'll be a bridge that's down and you have to fix the bridge or sometimes you have to walk around it. Sometimes you have to figure out a way to get a boat to get across. You will figure it out, but it's not, it's not always easy. Yeah, but you will figure it out. That, that's a great way to end it because the, the truth is when you are doing what you really feel like you're supposed to be doing, when you feel like you're bringing that thing that brings you joy and adds value to people's lives, you're going to figure it out. You will find out how, no matter how hard it gets. That's great advice to end on. If people want to stay in touch with you, where do they find you? Are you best on social media? Are you best on your website? Where should you, where should we send people? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, Probably Facebook or Instagram. I mean, Facebook, I think I'm Jeff Cohen Pancho's Lament. And then on Instagram, I'm just Jeff Cohen Music. Great. Well, we'll link it in the show notes. And thank you so much for being here and giving us so much of your time and sharing your story with us and being part of the Unleash Your Soul song community here. It's, it's actually really cool what, what you're doing with this podcast. And, you know, I'm, you know, if this could even help one person, then it was worth all the time. I would love to hear what you thought of today's show. Did you get something valuable from it? If so, don't keep it a secret. Tell your friends and family. I want everyone to unleash their soul song because the world needs all our beautiful music. I'd also really appreciate if you subscribe to the show on iTunes, rate and review. You may not realize it, but that's the best way to help other people find the show. I hope you'll come visit with me at theintuneexperience.com. While you're there, download your free copy of Intune Insights, designed to inspire you to unleash your soul song. I'd also love to hear from you on Instagram at Unleash Your Soul Song. Shoot me a message. Let me know. What'd you think about the show? Tell me what you want to hear about and what you're struggling with so that I can craft shows that provide you with insights, inspiration, and the tools you need to venture on your own personal journey. Listen, this world is busy. Our days are really full and life is super distracting. 
We're pulled in so many different directions every day. And so I thank you for joining me here today. Have a great week. You and me, you and me, he and she, he and she, next door neighbor, stranger down the street. Form a chain, form a chain, grab the clouds, grab the clouds, cause we haven't even touched our highest ground. No, we haven't even touched our highest ground. No, we haven't even touched our highest ground. Unleash Your Soul Song is recorded and edited in 426 Studios, the music production company that I co-own. For more information about our music and our services, please visit www.four26studios.com. That's www.426studios.com.